0: Lymphoma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello, and welcome to the Lymphoma Hub Podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from Greg Nowakowski from Mayo Clinic, Rochester, US, and Laurie Sen of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Hello, so I'm Laurie Sen from Vancouver, British Columbia, and I'm here today with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Greg Nowakowski from the Mayo Clinic. And we're gonna be talking a little bit about a debate that we had at the ICML meeting, which revolved around what the optimal upfront therapy is for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So for those of you that treat lymphoma, you know that it remains a big challenge because we've got a standard of care, um, which is R-CHOP, which most of us use in our own clinics that has a good chance of curing patients, but we know that not all patients are cured. And unfortunately, those patients that aren't cured with RCHOP actually still fare uh, relatively poorly and, and treating relapse refractory disease is, um, is a big problem. So optimizing upfront therapy remains really a, an important um, research question. So I, the point of argument I had was that RCHOP remains the current standard of care. In my own clinic, when I see patients with DLBCL, we do do FISH testing to identify patients who are double or triple hit in terms of dual rearrangement of MIC and BCL2 and or BCL6. And those patients I do currently treat differently. So we know that they've been pulled out in a separate category at WHO, and, and many of us are intensifying therapy. In my own clinic, I use dose-adjusted epoc But for all the other patients, particularly the bigger category of DLBCL, NOS, I continue to use RCHOP as it is still the best curative treatment that we have available with the, I guess, most favorable toxicity profile. um, And it still continues to be my standard of care. But how how about you, Greg? How do you treat your patients?
1: Uh, Thank you, Lori. So I I will start from this pleasure that Dr. Sen won this debate by wide margin, and I must agree with it. <laughs> uh, our T is the standard for a majority of patients with uh, diffuse or PC lymphoma. But during this argument, I was, bringing, I was trying to make an argument that this is a A standard, not necessarily D standard, because there are some patients uh, which may benefit from other therapies. And uh, you already mentioned the first category, which are patients with uh, a double-hit lymphoma. Uh, even with DLBCL histology, there appear to be a benefit to more dose-escalated therapy in this setting. Uh, it's a little bit unclear which one is the best of those. So those suggested epoch r as you already mentioned, is frequently used in this setting. Uh, we tend to use CODOX-M or other Burkitt-like regimens in younger patients, younger than 60, and those suggested EPOC-R over 60. Uh, so that's, that's one category. The other category of patients is this molecular category of ABC diffuser B cell lymphoma, which is historically associated with worst outcome. Um, number of trials there um, and mixed results. Unfortunately, none of them of the randomized phase three studies really moved the bar there. And so RCHOP is the standard, although because the results are inferior, uh, we consider it somewhat uh, uh, insufficient standard. And clearly uh, there is an opportunity for improvement in, in, in this uh, patient category. Finally, uh, we have a number of patients who are uh, not eligible for RCHOP due to age, performance, status, uh, or sometimes organ dysfunction. Uh, we call them sometimes left behind because they're left behind in our clinical trials. And that's that's a new and emerging group, which is now uh, more and more focused of ongoing research, how we can actually develop new therapies uh, for those patients, not necessarily incorporating RCHOP uh, to move the bar uh, uh, in, in, in this group of patients. We know from um, databases that those patients don't do as well with ARCHOP um, and uh, they frequently require those reductions with then results in interior outcome. So um, ARCHOP is the standard, uh, but we're not the only standard because we have those uh, we have those uh, patients which, which may benefit from alternative uh, approach here.
0: Yeah, well, I have to say, I, I would fully agree with you. Um, but if we do think about that group of patients that is suitable for our CHOP, so they've got dlbcl NOS, and they are of an age and, and comorbid status that they'd be appropriate for our CHOP. I think you know it's been disheartening that we've had a series of clinical trials really that have failed to move the bar in terms of standard of care. Um, it's Clearly, you know, we've seen a series initially of, chemotherapy-driven trials with intensified chemotherapy that you know really fail to make a difference. And then more recently we've had some of the novel therapies added into the RCHOP background and and pretty much universally those trials have been negative. I think you know one of the trials that I participated in, was, which was the Phoenix trial, looked at adding in Ibrutinib, so the BTK inhibitor to patients with non-GCB, DLBCL. So of course, this takes us into the realm of now biomarker driven trials, where when we've got targeted agents, they may not be appropriate for all patients anymore. So we're gonna to have to identify and select for patients based on who's most likely to benefit. Um, from that particular trial, I think we did learn um, some lessons, and that was that when we do biomarker driven trials, you know, there is the risk that the delay in doing the centralized biomarker can um, eliminate patients who need immediate treatment. So we, we saw that probably the outcomes were much higher across the board than we would have anticipated because we weren't able to capture the highest risk patients. Um, and in the end, unfortunately, that trial was negative overall, but intriguingly, when they did a subgroup analysis, there was positive benefit for younger patients, but not seen in older patients, thought possibly because the toxicity was prohibitive in older patients, they couldn't get the RCHOP, but there was a definite signal of, of PFS and OS. So that trial is going on to be repeated now with calibrutinib, it's uh, already ongoing. I think it's a, a valid question worth asking. But until then, until we validate that, of course, uh, it's not something that I would advocate for in clinical practice. But you are directly involved with two very important trials that looked at the inclusion of lenalidomide into RCHOP, and I'd be interested in in, um, your take on, on the results from those trials and whether or not they should translate right now into a change in how people treat their patients.
1: Yes, uh, and those two trials were robust. Which was the global phase three study for patients with ABC subtype of diffuse B-cell lymphoma, evaluating addition of lenalidomide to RCHOP twenty one uh, versus RCHOP alone. And the other study was E fourteen twelve, which was a U.S. intergroup study. Was a phase two study, uh, again looking at addition of lenalidomide to RCHOP versus RCHOP alone. Those studies have very different design. E1412 was open to all the patients, um, and it, the global study, ROBUST, was based on real time by a real-time bio-gene expression profiling with nanostring platform to identify patients with ABC subtype of diffuser cell lymphoma. When we designed those studies, we thought that approach using in ROBUST was the smartest thing we could do because we're really selecting patients which are higher risk at the highest risk of uh, progression after initial therapy, and the most likely to benefit from additional phenalidomide based on the on co- uh, previous uh, preclinical studies. But we found out exactly what you mentioned, that so using this real-time biomarker result in a hesitancy of the investigators to put some of the high-risk patients on this study. They were worried that if patients are not gonna get treated for a week or two required to get the biomarker back, um, this is gonna affect the uh, patient outcome and uh, selected uh, probably unconsciously to some degree patients which were lower risk. And you know we put huge effort in trying to make this biomarker real time. So the turnaround time in the lab was only 2.4 days. Uh, so this was done as efficiently with global effort as you could imagine, but in, life is life. In reality, you still have to collect the slides and make sure that it's being shipped and all the logistics still resulted in very long so-called time from diagnosis to treatment in this study. Median was about 31 days, but there were quite a few patients who had it actually for several months before they initiated therapy. This is in contrast to E1412, where anybody who just had a lymphoma was immediately eligible for this treatment. And this trial in contrast to robust actually did show a signal that the the addition of lenalidomide could be beneficial uh, in this setting. Um, unfortunately, no, this was a signal seeking study, phase two, so it's not practice changing, um, particularly since robust study was negative. Now, this work is still moving forward because uh, 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 r square chop, now exactly with the dose and schedule uh, used in uh, E1412, is moving forward in another uh, global study called the Front Mind, uh, where uh, Tapacit. To map a novel anti-C19 antibody is added on the top of R-square CHOP. And this doublet added on to R-CHOP is then compared against R-CHOP alone. Uh, there was a small feasibility study called FirstMind which showed that this approach is feasible. This does not result in a dose delays of R-CHOP, this was presented at ICML. And uh, um, there was also a presentation in trials in progress where the design of this new global study uh, was presented as well. and. In designing this study, we use the elements of the what we call the modern design. So We're trying to remove all the possible barriers from putting patients on a on a, on a trial rapidly, allowing pretreatment steroids and capturing those high-risk patients, which you alluded to, because it's so important uh, for the outcomes of those trials. And sometimes there is this urgency in uh, treating physicians to start treatment uh, uh, urgently and with, without considering the trials. But in our experience, as you alluded already to, Those are the patients who have the most to gain from being on the trials. So I would really encourage everybody to consider those or other trials ongoing in this space and capturing those high-risk patients in those trials. And and you can do it through stabilization uh, um, pre-treatment, which is now quite well established.
0: Yes, I I think it's exciting to see that despite the challenges we've had so far, that there are numerous ongoing trials, I, I think, that show a lot of promise. Probably the first one out there that we'll be hearing about, of course, is the Polarics trial, which uh, was an attempt to introduce polituzumab vedotin into the frontline setting. So polituz- polituzumab vedotin is an antibody drug conjugate targeting CD79B. And, of course, we had um, randomized phase 2 trial in the relapsed refractory setting where it was combined with bendamustine and rituximab that showed an improvement in PFS and overall survival, and and now it's approved in that setting. But the Polarix trial actually uh, moved it forward in untreated patients, really replacing it out for vincristine. Now that trial, uh, I think we'll have to see, but it's anticipated that we may get results in the next several months, and and we'll have to see whether or not that's gonna finally move the, the needle on outcome. If that trial is positive, what do you think will happen to the other ongoing trials right now? I mean, will they have to adjust and accommodate? Um, will the answers that they yield if they stay with a similar design have, have meaning? How are we gonna integrate the results from different trials?
1: So that's a great question because, you know, how, what do you do with the control arm? Will you need to adjust it? I think this will depend on the magnitude of benefit in the study and potentially some subgroup analysis as well. Um, how consistent was this benefit if the polar X is indeed positive? Uh, because some of those trials are targeting different patient populations like younger patients or really high risk patients and are the same benefits seen in the, the same patient population polarex study will be very important to know how to move uh, forward Uh, Because you're absolutely right, if uh, polarex is significantly positive across different subgroups, uh, then ARCHOV as a control arm could become uh, a substandard in ongoing trials.
0: I think the world's going to get a lot more confusing. So, you know, although we can uh, agree to disagree um, right now about what the standard of care is, you know, I, I think that we can probably agree that with the exception of the subgroups of patients that you mentioned at the beginning, you know, Art Shop is, is still the standard, but to move that bar forward, you know, it's exciting to see that we do have different options. And, and there are a series of trials, as you say, adding on to art shop. We still have the possibility of, of other trial designs, such as looking at maintenance therapy after art shop, although I think that we've not yet seen that work with a variety of agents. It may not be the best way to move forward. I think one of the exciting approaches is this concept of response adapted trials. Um, PET scanning was used as a response adaptive in a response adaptive trial design just recently presented at Ash where they tried to move CAR T cell therapy forward in the upfront setting. And I thought that was a really a proof-of-concept trial, but we don't really can't really say much about whether or not that's going to be an appropriate approach. Um, I think circulating tumor DNA, you know, remains a really exciting uh, potential uh, predictive marker for allowing us to, to develop response adaptive trials. Um, and then of course, you know, probably the Holy grail would be to ultimately get rid of chemotherapy altogether and, and replace our job with some of the exciting novel agents that we're seeing um, coming forward. But you know, with that, I think there's still a lot of work to be done and, and um, it is an exciting time, and, and I think we all need to watch the literature very carefully.
1: I think we definitely agree that this is probably the most exciting time in uh, diffuse large cell lymphoma with all the new agents coming and how we can combine it. And sometimes when we when we talk about the frontline therapy, because we had so many negative trials, there's this aura of negativity that you know the previous trials were not necessarily successful, uh, but they led to something. I think we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot how to focus our effort on the patients, uh, we really can make a difference with those new treatments. So I'm, I'm really optimistic that this new generation of modern trials will, will move the bar.
0: And that's something we can agree on. <laughs> okay, well, it's, it's certainly been a pleasure talking through this today, and, and um, I think we look forward to all the data that's yet to come.
1: Thank you, it's actually a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Lymphoma Hub podcast.
0: We would also like to thank our supporters, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, Insight, Roche and Novartis. Lymphoma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.